That's it, it's over. Then we organized the death squads for the people who wrecked America. You know what you call people you can't talk to? Enemies. And if we want to divide our society into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. A radical agenda. The event has turned into an opportunity for the left to push a racial and radical agenda. Implementing their radical agenda is the only thing they care about. They're bad actors. What they want to do here is ram their radical agenda down your throat. These are great Americans. These are people that want to see great things for the country. You know, they try and build them like uh, sort of a radical agenda. It's not a radical agenda. It's called the Second Amendment. All right, onward and welcome to the Radical Agenda. It's a show about timeless ideas, the news of the day, and whatever's on your mind usually when we take calls. But I got a guest again tonight. <laughs> So we're not going to give you guys word one. I got too much to say to our good friend Augustus Invictus. Augustus Invictus has been a, uh, he has long held a unique and special place in the history of the radical agenda, as it turns out. We had him as a guest in October of 2015. It's been eight years I've been talking to this guy. Uh, for episode 44, long before we had even contemplated the idea of stages to the pogrom, uh, back then he was seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination to run for the United States Senate, and I could tell just from the enemies that he had made that he was pissing off all of the right people, and God damn, do I like that in a man. Thus began our friendship now eight years running plus. For those familiar with his activities, it will come as no surprise to hear that he continues to make all of the right enemies. Among the most notable and energetic of these is Albemarle County Commonwealth's attorney Jim Hingley, a Soros-backed Democrat who replaced my erstwhile tormentor from that office, one Mr. Robert Tracy. And then, let me fix this thing. Okay, so now you guys who are over there on Radical Agenda Broadcasting and Surreal Politics Broadcasting, now you can hear us on the radio feeds because I fixed that problem. And so, uh, Mr. Tracy, my fellow Republican, he made a mistake all too common among members of our party, you see. He tried to have it both ways. Knowing that his witnesses had lied under oath to frame me for a crime, he refused to drop the charges against me, lest he be seen as going soft on those Nazis, right? He calculated that by pursuing one fraud and not another, he could placate the mob without looking unreasonable. In service to this calculation, he had written quite coherently about all the reasons it would be quite inappropriate to violate the First Amendment rights of the Unite the Right attendees who carried tiki torches through the University of Virginia campus on August 11, 2017. But the people who think it admirable to torment the innocent under color of law in some circumstances do not know what it feels like to have their thirst quenched. That is, to them, an entirely foreign concept. They are congenitally incapable of satisfaction, and all they know is the drive to mayhem and chaos. The people who find this sort of behavior disreputable, few though they may be in the city of Charlottesville, are by no means energetic to vote for politicians who make scapegoats and human sacrifices of the innocent to placate mobs of insatiable, bloodthirsty criminals. And so predictably, Mr. Tracy lost his job in the following election to the aforementioned Mr. Hingley. And Mr. Hingley himself, though he ran on a campaign promise to abuse the powers of his office as no sane man would dare, even then did not begin dragging men from their homes to answer for this imagined crime of burning to intimidate. 
He set himself to the more mundane task of setting killers and drug dealers loose on the street and making his jurisdiction wholly intolerable for the law-abiding, but it took him several years to work up the absolute nerve to do something so outrageous as to charge hundreds of men with felonies for a political demonstration approved in advance by law enforcement. Among those hundreds of men is our good friend, Mr. Invictus. Now, once again, a practicing attorney himself, Mr. Invictus found himself in the market for a colleague to represent him when he was arrested for this imagined crime. Being the sort of fellow he is and trained in the practice of law, he has been quite energetic in participating in his own defense and much, I might add, to the uh, benefit of his, uh, I don't know if they, uh, the co-defendants is probably the wrong word, but similar idea. Perhaps this is in part the motivation for the gag order, which was just rescinded, which had prevented him from discussing the case at all until just last week. And now freshly able to provide his valuable expert commentary on the subject in his first public appearance in years. Our dear friend, Mr. Augustus Invictus, joins us for the entirety of this evening's two-hour broadcast to bring us up to speed on the latest in this lawfare outrage. Mr. Augustus Invictus, I missed you, friend. It's good to see you again. Mr. Cantwell, my fellow Republican, good to see you again, buddy. Right on. And so uh, let's, you know, you attended the Unite the Right rally with the rest of us. You had you had been live streaming down there. You're, um, you had a live stream video that was actually uh, kind of important. You, I actually brought your live stream video was um, a defense exhibit in the Signs v. Kessler trial. You caught the moment that Thomas Massey took the first swings on people at uh, the University of Virginia. And of course, you know, that's conveniently overlooked by all the criminals who are trying to uh, make this about Donald Trump and colonialism. But yeah, uh, <laughs> the wild thing is that video is exculpatory. That video shows everything from beginning to end, the entire march from the start to the finish till the torches were put out shows everything. And uh, they're claiming that actually shows that a crime was committed. It's amazing. When, uh, like you said, uh, Antifa were the ones that started the whole thing. Well, I, I agree with their assessment that it shows a crime was committed. They're just really mixed up about the perps, air. you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think that cap, that video captures many, many crimes. I'd go so far as to say, there's a lot of video of a lot of crime taken down, taking place down there, and you know, I don't, I don't know about any criminals going to jail yet, sadly, and so. Uh, that is uh, that is an unfortunate circumstance, but not at all, uh, you know, not entirely unexpected, I might say, in clown world as, as we happen to find ourselves. And so during this event, um, you know, you you and I were both supposed to be featured speakers at it. Um, that yeah. was the idea. Well, the next day. Yeah. On August well, 12th. Yes. On yeah. August 12th was kind of the idea, you know. So um, packing up just what we're charged for is August 11th, the torchlight rally. For those who don't know or weren't there. Yeah, we were we were scheduled speakers for August 12th, the actual Unite the Right rally. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, you know, I don't know about you. I found out about the August 11th torch march on August 11th. I had no idea about this thing. Right. And yeah, so we were there at the uh, the meeting, the briefing. Where right. It just came into being that night, you know. And so, uh, you know, this thing was supposed to be it was such a secret that me and him didn't even know about it. And then we find out about it after it's going down dot org finds out about it. And so it's going down.org publishes the details of this thing on the website. Uh, Mr. Invictus is captured on my body camera from the meeting that many of you have heard me talk about, where we're at this park and Jason Kessler informs us that 
um, itsgoingdown.org has published the details of this thing. And I say to Kessler, I'm like, hey, you know, I know we got a permit for tomorrow. The cops involved in this. Kessler says no. And uh, and I say, well, you know, if you want me to be involved in this thing, you're going to have to get the cops involved. These people are obviously going to attack us at the UVA if, if they're not stopped. And so he gets the he says you get the cops on the phone later in that video. Eli Mosley says he talked to the cops. The cops are going to be there. They're going to pay them overtime, he says. And this does not materialize and all hell breaks loose. And so uh, when we uh, when we go down there, uh, Mr. Invictus, why don't you just tell us your experience as you arrive on the campus? Oh, didn't really know where to go. I mean, clearly the Antifa were better informed than any of us. Um, we got there, had to mill about looking for the rendezvous point. I'd never been to the campus before. We get there and uh, people are handing out these tiki torches. And then eventually they line us up and then people are lighting the tiki torches. And uh, we've got security teams on both sides of this column that are marching through the campus. And, you know, like I said, I filmed uh, beginning to end. And the entire tenor of the thing is these security groups on either side, keeping everyone in a file to march very orderly and saying, you know, every time uh, some radical leftist on the the left or the right would start heckling the the column or start, you know, trying to engage, the the security team wouldn't allow it. They'd say, do not engage, keep walking. Um, Nothing happened. Nothing happened until we got to the statue, which, like I've said before, I didn't even know where we were going. I don't think anybody knew we were going to the statue. This was an organized march where we were just following. And uh, we got there and sure enough, um, Antifa had uh, locked arms around the statue. Uh, They don't call them Antifa, the prosecution. They call them uh, VA students. They're they're UVA students. They're not Antifa, they're not BLM. They're certainly not leftists or radicals or political activists at all. They're just innocent students. Well, this happened to be there. This is very funny. So, you know, this was, they tried to do that at the Signs v. Kessler trial, right? And so then we're like, okay, do you know this person? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? Pointing them out, right? No, 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 no. Do you know if they're UVA students? No, you know. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it was not you know, I was like getting the hang of the rules of evidence as this thing's all going mm-hmm. on. And, you know, trying to demonstrate who these people were proved to be a bit more challenging than I was prepared for. I was not able to well, identify. These I'll people tell you, today. I still don't know who they are. And the, the gag order was lifted, but I should specify um, I can't talk about whoever these alleged victims are because I not that I know who they are. I've never been provided with a witness list. Uh so they're we're the victims, obviously, but um, you know the court order says I'm not allowed to make contact, direct or indirect, with whoever these imaginary people are. So I, I should state that for the record, because this your podcast is obviously going to be used at my next hearing. Well, <laughs> in that's interesting. So you know that's the uh, I guess that's that's an interesting element of this thing in itself that we'll have to touch on. You know who who the victims in this in this supposed crime wave are, but you know. Um, the so we get to the we get to the, the 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 monument there's a bunch of criminals there they attack us there's a fight this goes on for maybe 60 seconds if i recall correctly it's not it's not 5 minutes i know that it's less than that um and then after all of the mayhem then the police are like hey why don't you just get lost is my recollection of it sound about sound about right to you sounds about right to me yeah and by us i mean there were like a couple people by the statue. I mean, I I don't even recall being near the statue. I was pretty far off and 
I remember there being the Antifa around the statue and there were Antifa <laughs> behind me holding a sign and, uh, you know, nobody sprayed me or knocked a torch out of my hand. I mean, I, I felt pretty disconnected with that whole scuffle. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good point, right? So, you know, part of the part of the theme for a lot of this has been, you know, this is about the violence, right? But in your case, nobody's accusing you of participating in any violence, right? No, the prosecution's theory is that we circled the statue, all right? And in circling the statue, we intimidated these people. And they felt not only that they couldn't leave, but um, that their lives were in danger. That's how insane this whole thing is. Okay. This is actually something I didn't understand before. Uh, yep. So my my under what I thought the accusation was was the mere march through the campus. What they're saying is that the people around the statue, they're they're the victims in this theory. Okay. So that's interesting. I didn't yes. actually I didn't actually know that until just now. Cuz that doesn't feature prominently into any of the coverage that I've heard, right? I'm not hearing these people come forward and and uh, be victims of a crime here, okay? I mean, they they claim they they all claim to have been victims of violence. Of course, the whole town, you know, the whole town was a victim of violence. When yeah. when when I question them under oath, they're not able to tell me who hurt them. Of course, you know, um, but you know, but the that's that that's the first I'm hearing of this. That the the victims in the case are the people around the statue. So that's an interesting theory of uh, liability here okay so you're not allowed to talk about those people and and we'll conspicuously avoid that um but you know i would just say to anyone who's interested to know who those criminals were you can look at radical agenda stage six episode 28 i want to say the title of it was closing argument and i went through actual trial exhibits from the signs v kessler trial and i showed in great detail who those people were and why they were responsible for the violence. Top, the, the, the people who started that thing were not UVA students, and they had to drop that lie before the end of the Science v. Kessler trial, okay? They started off telling the jury in their opening statement, the students, the students, the students. And they had to, by the time they got to their closing argument, they dropped that nonsense because they realized they had been caught in that lie. They're not students, okay? There were a couple of students there. But they were embedded, and the students are co-conspirators, okay? The, the students are co-conspirators. When you look at the, the trial exhibits that I have there, um, there's an individual who's filming around that statue. And, and this person, strong word to describe this thing as a person, but you get the idea. This, this, this individual um, approaches this scene, this crime scene that's about to occur and warns his co-conspirators that we're nearby and says, uh, hey, you know, uh, there's a lot of them. And he says, I know. And the reason they know is because this person has been live streaming the whole time and doing head counts, doing recon for them. And when he approaches them, he films their feet. He goes around. He says, this is what we have. We have activists, students, uh, 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 students against white supremacy. And he films only the feet of these of this black block criminal organization but he brings up his camera and he films two faces who happen to be plaintiffs in his science v kessler trial and those people were john and jane doe to me until i walked into the courtroom because you know they were just so afraid of you know what might happen to them and so uh that's very interesting so these people are the are the victims of the crime it's not that the general march through the thing is the is the thing the the 
right they're the, they're the allegedly the, the encircling of the people with the statue now as i've explained uh elsewhere um there is an ancient legal maxim that say and i i really don't care the prosecutor hears this because you know what are they going to do um but there's an ancient legal maxim that's called volenti non fiti nuria the the willing cannot suffer injury so it used to be if you were engaged in mutual combat it was understood like don't call us and and tell me to arrest this guy you were in this parking lot fight now we have this theory well the state is actually the state has a monopoly on violence the state is now the victim in the case of a battery even if it is quote unquote mutual however when you have a bunch of antifa who are encircling a statue who deliberately got there to start a confrontation and then locked arms and now they're claiming they can't leave that's just insanity so i i'm pretty confident this case is going to be dismissed well before trial but i kind of hope it does go to trial because we're going to disembowel them well, sometimes not the victims, not the victims, <laughs> the prosecution. We're going to disembowel the prosecution. Yes, you're going to uh, metaphorically humiliate lawyers in a courtroom. I understand the idea. Um, now, uh, you tell. Well, let's go to this concept. Let's let's begin there. I mean, you you still have faith in the law, apparently. You you uh, you you are a practicing attorney. You, you've been. Um, a licensed attorney for how long now? You, 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 when did you pass the bar exam? In what year? Uh, over a decade. Um, I graduated 2011, so I think my first my first bar exam was 2011. Okay. Yeah. So you you passed the bar exam in 2011. You were practicing for a time, but you got out of that business for a while, right? Well, actually, ironically, I, I had retired that very year um, of Charlottesville. Earlier that year, I had retired my license. I was like, I'm going politics full time, and then. Uh, this happened, and I was blacklisted from everything. Um, ended up uh, reinstating my license and going back to practicing law the next year. Okay, so you had been out. So, so you were you were you said you were blacklisted in 2017, and then in 2018 or 2019 you got back into the got back into the business. Yeah, I'm in blacklisted from speaking. I, I, you know, I was I was scheduled to speak in Boston the very week after charlottesville i'm sorry so you were shut out of like political things is what you yes mean. correct okay. yeah everybody everybody countrywide no yeah. one would have would touch me after charlottesville right. so i was not allowed to speak anywhere not allowed at rallies you know uh and then yeah a year later i uh, reinstated my license uh, when the ram case came around and that's uh what i went back to Okay, so you were involved. Um, were you were you actually somebody's defense attorney in one of the, in one of the Ram cases, or or some of them? Yeah, um, and that's a long story. So uh, I, I was involved with a lot of cases, and a lot of them underground. Uh, we had a legal defense network at the time. Uh, you've been following uh, Molly Conger's articles on the on this whole thing. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I couldn't say that I've kept very close track of them, but they come across my radar from time to time. Yeah, yeah, she's doing like a whole um, do my biography, really. And uh, she's, you know, got well, I looked at these court records and he was doing this and, you know, he was in the courtroom in Los Angeles and it, and like she thinks she's piecing together all these things. And it just everything I do is so off the you know the record that uh it's 
hard to talk about it, especially when you know Molly Conger's watching this. And I don't want to tell her how wrong she is. Like, I'd rather her just think she's doing a good job. Um, but, yeah, I was involved in the Ram cases and a lot of other cases. Okay. And so um, there's obviously uh, perhaps a, a greater incentive to come after you than some others. Now, they've gone after guys. Uh, I, I, I'm tempted to say that you're the highest profile name that I've heard get indicted for this thing, right? I mean, I haven't, certain, thing, yeah. I haven't heard Spencer hasn't been indicted. Kessler hasn't been indicted. They can't indict me because I have a plea agreement with them. From right. I, My plea agreement, I pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors that I didn't commit. You know, in order to avoid trial on some nonsense, and part of the agreement was you can't charge me with anything else for my conduct that evening. And so, angry though I was to, you know, to take the humiliation of that plea deal, boy, am I glad I don't have this problem to deal with. Um, right. But they they have indicted how many people now? Have been? Do you know? I feel like it's about ten people. Um, last I checked, uh, not many. Yeah. You know, well, as far as the grand jury, I don't know. Um, How many, but yeah, so only yeah, to, to the best of your be knowledge. To my me. knowledge, it's 25, really. That's what I was told by another lawyer. But okay. I know the people who have actually been on the hook is about 10. Okay. And so um, now some of these guys have already taken plea deals. What do you know about that? Well, I'd like to start by saying I know about the guy who denied them bond, right? Turns out to be the chief judge of the circuit he's now recused himself from my case to my knowledge he's recused himself from the other cases but I'm, I'm not sure about the other cases but i'll tell you this he accepted these plea deals he denied these people bond and all the while he was present at the events and that right off the bat is just absolutely egregious all right so let's 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 pick that apart a little bit so this judge what's the judge's name now warrell Okay, Judge this Wolf. is Judge Worrell, and he said, and you, what was his, he had a, did you say he was the chief of the circuit or something? What, what was his? He is. The yeah, chief, the judge, chief of judge of the circuit yeah. court for Albemarle County. Right, which means he's the boss of all the judges. Okay, so I know the, the judge that I had to deal with was a woman by the name of Higgins. She, he's above her is the idea. He's her boss, that's okay. correct. Higgins is the one who gave me bond, believe it or not. Right. But she's also the one who denied our motion to dismiss. But she's also the one who entered the gag order and the one who lifted the gag order. She's been the judge on everything so far, except for the fact that when we walked in to do the motion to dismiss originally, Chief Judge Worrell was sitting on the bench. And uh, my, my attorney said, look, Judge, uh, I'm sorry. You know, no offense. With all due respect. motion to recuse you because you were there your wife is in the media talking about these torch wielding nazis who are terrorists and have hold, held us hostage uh he he didn't even get into the more radical accusations about his daughter being antifa who worked with the prosecutor in the events in question like we didn't even mention those things just the fact that he was there and where where Hello. specifically was he? What what did, what was his degree so he of was participation? Allegedly at the church at St. Paul's Church and it was an organizing meeting. And is that um, is that the church of fake Reverend Wispelwee? I guess I don't know. Okay, I don't know who that. All I know is that guy had had been out at the hotel taking pictures of the license plate of the car I was driving. That's all I know. Um, Wispelwee was taking pictures of your car or the judge? Oh yeah, no the fake uh, the fake priest. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, when a judge has an apparent conflict of interest, he has to recuse himself from the case. And it's not about 
yes, I actually would be partial in this case, or I, I couldn't, you know, give it a fair <laughs> hearing. It's the very appearance of a conflict. You need to disclose that. Yeah. He did not tell anybody any of this, not about his presence, not about his wife or anything else until we called him out on it. He had accepted guilty pleas. He had denied men bond. He denied a man bond who had 10 kids at home in another state, forced him to take a plea, never said a word about it, and finally recused himself when we said, look, I'm sorry, but you you cannot hear Mr. Invictus's case. Um, you got to recuse yourself. And he did. Uh, so now there's an outstanding motion um, filed by my attorney and another attorney uh, to recuse all of the judges in the circuit because he is now being called as a witness and his wife is being called as a witness. Uh, and those other judges who are his subordinates cannot hear the case. I would say so. that that is, well, give me the argument. How is it that his subordinates can't take the case? What's the, what's the argument there? He and his wife are both being called as witnesses and possibly his daughter. The fact is these judges have to determine the credibility of their own boss and his wife and his daughter. And what judge can possibly do that with a straight face and say, yeah, I'm, I'm totally being objective in determining their credibility as a witness. Do you know um, the judges on now? I, I understand. I, I think of it's I'm not exactly sure what the structure of the courts in in Virginia are. And I don't know if you can speak intelligently to this. You know, I in the federal system, you've got a district court and then a circuit court as the appellate courts. But you're in a you're in a circuit court. You're not dealing with an appeal. So it's obviously a different structure than that. What is um, are, are these judges? Are they elected? Are they the the chief judge can't just fire Higgins, for example, right? What's the appointments thing works in Virginia, honestly? But I can okay. tell you what the circuit means. So, like here in uh, in Florida, we have a county court and then the circuit court. Now, this is state court. In um, I think they call it a district court and a circuit court in Virginia is the same concept. Basically, you've got these little cases in county court or district court, like the, the misdemeanors, basically, uh, you know, drunk driving or battery or whatever petty offenses. Circuit court is the higher court, and that's felonies. Um, the ancient concept is, you know, an ancient Anglo-American law that the judges would ride a literal circuit um, going through all of these neighborhoods and counties, uh, and they would go county by county hearing all of these cases that would come to them in the time of the assize or whatever. Um, and we've kept that concept here. So in some states like Virginia or South Carolina, uh, these judges actually still rotate through a circuit, like, like in ancient times. Here in Florida, circuit court just means, you know, it's the higher court, it's felonies. Like one judge has one courtroom and they have all the same cases, they got their own caseload. But in, in cases like South Carolina and Virginia, they still ride the circuit. So those subordinate judges I mean, it really doesn't anywhere, even if it were here in Florida, a subordinate judge judging the credibility of their own boss, the chief judge, is just such an obvious conflict that you, you have to recuse yourself. There's no question about it. Right. Um, and so uh, let's talk about the prospects of the law being adhered to here then. So if you have if you have a problem in the circuit court, then you're there's an appellate court above them in any case. Then right there's what's That's and then I guess there's an appellate court and then there's a supreme court on top of that for the state of Virginia. That's right. Okay, you have the Virginia Supreme Court, and then you have the U.S. Supreme Court when that all goes to hell. Okay, now um, and so this would be 
you would not go to the United States Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. If you were turned down by the Virginia right. State Supreme Court, you'd go straight to the United States Supreme Court. Is that that's is right. that's the structure of it? Okay, correct. And so. Um, the prospects of you prevailing on legitimate motions uh, pertain to overturned, right? I mean, if they they don't want to be overturned, that makes them look bad. It's it's the reason. It's what the, in theory is supposed to keep these people honest, right? And, <laughs> in and, theory, in theory, and so you have filed a motion to uh, you filed a motion to dismiss. This motion was denied by Judge Higgins, right? Correct. Okay. Now you're still saying that you believe the case is going to be dismissed before you before you get to trial. Are you taking this now to the appellate court in the state of Virginia, saying, "Hey, she was supposed to grant this and she hasn't"? Is that if it ever gets to that point? Yeah, I don't think it will. But um, you would have to wait until the conclusion of the case in order to do that. Now, the the denial of the motion to dismiss is not a final judgment in the case, so you can't appeal it right now. We'd have to appeal it in the event the unlikely event of a conviction right then you would go to the appellate court and you'd say look they should have granted the motion to dismiss number one they should have recused themselves they should have disqualified the prosecutor's office they should have done x y and z like all these corrupt issues and then you have the major issue of um i forget the, <laughs> the standard but it's like a, a cumulative effect of all these errors I mean, there are a million reasons to appeal. So that's why they have to get rid of it before trial or they're going to be just humiliated. But you do not have standing in the appellate court until you've been convicted of the charge, essentially. So they can, they can abuse you right up until the point of conviction without you having remedy is, is kind of the idea. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. Well, that's that's an interesting element in itself, because, I mean, you know, these people understand the, the punishment of process. Right. And so, you know, there's a there's process a, is the punishment. That's right. right. And 100%. so they um, now, you know, I'll say, you know, in my dealings with Judge Higgins, um, so far as judges in the city of Charlottesville go, you could do worse than her. She doesn't come out like she's a, a complete maniac, but I agree. she she also is, I, I think. I don't think that she's uh, immune to the forces of that city. And so a very charitable way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's clearly she's she's held hostage. I mean, you could tell I, I like telling this story because it, it tells like uh, the real nature of practicing law. Uh, when I first went into federal court for like my first hearing in federal court, I noticed that opposing. I mean, opposing counsel was like, it's the biggest law firm in Orlando. Uh, they were absolutely ready to crush me and no questions asked like i was going to lose this hearing but we go and he's at the podium and i can see that he's shaking and i can hear his voice trimmering and it occurs to me that because i was raised in state court where everybody's fighting all the time like animals like i have no problem being in court it doesn't bother me and i can tell when another attorney is scared to be there and judge higgins was scared when she was reading her opinion into the record she denied the motion yeah uh, on dubious grounds, I would say, but she did leave the back door open. She did say, yeah, I'm going to reserve ruling on the fact that this may be unconstitutional. And we're going to see what the facts say at trial. And depending on what the facts say, it may be unconstitutional. So I think that alone was an act of bravery on her part. But she is clearly held hostage by these people. Well, you know, it, it, that makes me think of the trial of Jason Kessler, okay? 
Uh, yeah. If you remember the circumstances of that, I mean, they went through this whole thing right up until the point that the jury was deliberating. And Robert Tracy, it, it, it borders on suspicious that he would make this mistake, frankly. He, for, he, he like neglected to show jurisdiction, you know, just like the first thing that you do as a prosecutor. This happened in this city or whatever the whatever the process is. He, he failed to do that. And the judge dismissed the over and on the technicality and yeah. it was something that he fought he he tried to refile the case and he said yeah well you know the fact that he made a legal argument i don't know the, the substance of the merits of it i did read the motion at the time but he's like look what you dismissed the case for is not something that need be uh, dismissed with prejudice this can still be brought we can still put this man on trial and she declined to do it at that point and at that point jason kessler was uh was for, uh, out from under this perjury charge. i'm unfamiliar with all the inside baseball there but it sounds to me like if they had a jury the jury was sworn in judge dismissed the case i feel like that's with prejudice i i mean i feel like that's a double jeopardy issue but i don't know Maybe, maybe I don't know the inside. Uh, it, I don't know. He, his argument may have been meritless. It wouldn't be the first meritless thing that Robert Tracy did, you know. Um, well, I mean, speaking of Tracy, though, that's a huge issue in this case that, like you said in the, the intro, um, Tracy straight up said, this is not a crime. These people are exercising their First Amendment rights. I cannot arrest them for this. He wrote a whole article on this in Seville Weekly. And then Tim Heafy was hired by Charlottesville wrote this whole like hundreds of pages about everything that happened and said, look, this is just plain not against the law. If you want to outlaw people carrying torches on campus, you need to expand the law to include open flames and torches. Plain as day. Like not only the prosecutor, but the independent investigator also said this law just does not apply. And that was the basis of the motion to dismiss. Uh, and the judge was like, yeah, Tracy thought that, but he didn't say the judge couldn't make a ruling on it, so I'm just going to dismiss it. <laughs> like I said, it was really dubious grounds to dismiss the, the motion to dismiss. Well, that's interesting. So, um, but she, now you're saying what, she's reserving ruling on whether or not it's unconstitutional. Um, you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, if if there's a, isn't the idea of a pretrial motion to avoid putting somebody on trial for something that's unconstitutional? Right. Right. Well, in Virginia, they do have a motion to strike. And this, this we take we have kind of the same thing in judgment of acquittal motion here in Florida. Um, but in Virginia, they have this motion to strike at the end of the prosecution's case where you say, look, prosecution just didn't prove the case or, you know, a reasonable jury couldn't possibly find this person guilty or the conduct here doesn't fit the statute he's charged under, which is our, the basis of our motion to dismiss in reality. Or this is unconstitutional. And so. Like I said, uh, prosecution's theory, theory is a strong <laughs> word. Um, their accusation is, well, they encircled these people and they were holding torches and they didn't feel free to leave and they were scared for their lives. And this was a true threat. And so the First Amendment does not apply to true threats. That's what they're going with. Okay. And I'm familiar with the true threat concept yeah. because, of course, I had to deal with this in federal court. And so... That is a um, that's a piece of case law. I, I think that the the citation there might be Alanis or maybe something prior to that 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 Alanis was citing. And so the idea is that you know if you uh, if if you say something that is um, 
I don't know. I'm trying to come up with something sufficiently ridiculous, but the idea being, if you're if you're uh, playing cards with somebody and you say like, oh, uh, you know, uh, if you put that ace down, I'm gonna kill you or something like that, and your friend understands that this is not a threat, you're not gonna be charged with a crime for that. But if you communicate something that is not explicitly a threat and somebody receives it as a threat, or that's your intent then that is what they call a true threat, and that's where the legal standard applies for the laws against threatening. The threatening, generally speaking, is not protected by the First Amendment. So the whole entire category of law is that you know, a threat is an intent that is independent of the speech involved, I guess is the sort of the way to describe it. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds better than I could have explained it, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And so what the, the theory of liability here is that by by encircling the 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 criminals uh, with the torches, that the torches constituted the, the threat and then therefore exceeds the boundaries of freedom of speech is the, is the theory of liability here. Now, um, it, but they have to prove that you intended to do this. Isn't that the case? Well, yeah, they, the prosecutor, who again is Antifa, yes, uh, keeps repeating... Well, you can hear in Mr. Invictus's uh, video that he says, oh, we forgot the pitchfork, so we just got our torches. Clearly, <laughs> that is a joke. Uh, and he's using <laughs> that as his evidence that we intended to kill these people. It's insane. It's absolute Antifa insanity. Just like, I don't know what gender I am. I'm going to cut off my genitals. Like, that's the level of insanity we're dealing with here. Well, that is that is pretty amusing. The the we forgot the, the the pitchforks line. I remember that came up in the civil case too. They said that. Um, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Now, Same caliber of people. It, yeah. it, it's it's really now. It, uh, it might be worth explaining for the audience. This is Albemarle County. It's not the city of Charlottesville. Now, y- your jurors will be picked from, among other places, the city of Charlottesville, That's and right. so you're not immune to this problem. But do you have any information about the you know, the jury pool in Albemarle County versus the jury pool in the city of Charlottesville? Yeah, well, I mean, the city of Charlottesville is notoriously communist. They are UVA. They are all the blue-haired Antifa. I mean, it's, that's the worst possible jury. But Albemarle County is still Virginia country, you know? I talk to every law enforcement officer I came in contact with from here in Orlando to Charlottesville and back. Every single one of them hates these prosecutors, wants them gone. Those prosecutors have allowed crime to skyrocket. Lee Park is now a homeless encampment. I mean, people are getting on the street. It's a nightmare. And I'm asking every single one of these guys, let me ask you this. You've got crime through the roof right now. Your jail looks empty to me. Uh, And you're going all across the country picking us up for this. How do you feel about that? (laughs) And yeah, without exception, they hate these prosecutors. So these these people in Albemarle County, they're not going to put up with this. It was, you know, the city of Charlottesville. They had uh, there was a piece in um, the Daily Progress uh, that there was a quote mass exodus of of law enforcement from the Charlottesville Police Department in the wake of mm-hmm. the Unite the Right rally that they were like, you know, any cop who was working in that city was like, 
looking for another job because they they couldn't they could they either had to get on board with this corrupt program or you know basically face you know the 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 absolute havoc that these activists can bring against them in a court system that's not going to have their back you imagine being a cop in the city of charlottesville you have to shoot some criminal and then you're going to be you're going to spend the rest of your life in a virginia state prison it's better like, just not to carry a gun you should just die yeah you know? i mean you, you're like you're you, you know it's you can't you can't do your job and so no no good cop wants to work in that city under these prosecutors for sure and so uh that is that is a powerful commentary on you know what it is that they're doing there um so uh I mean, what is it? I'm sorry. So I started to get into this, and then I I think that we got onto other subjects. I mean, the 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 likelihood of you prevailing on any given motion, you know, what do you know about the appellate court? Can you speak to that at all? In the the Virginia, Virginia appellate court that you'd be bringing it to? Nah, I don't know anything about it. Because um, I mean, it seems to me that these people don't fear consequences right i mean they no, you know uh, no, they, they clearly fear the mob in charlottesville more than they fear fear the appellate court however you know warrell aside um the other judges are still judges they're still lawyers they still have reputations that they've got to be concerned about you know they they might be you know beholden to the mob there but like they've got to realize that this is going to follow them their whole lives. Like this is going to follow their kids. Like they, they can't do something this corrupt out in broad daylight and just be like, yeah, I'm fine with that. Like eventually they're, they're going to have to answer for this, whether it's the appellate court or it's their kids saying, what in God's name were you thinking uh, back in 2023, 2024? Um, I just feel like these these guys have consciences and they're professionals. Um, again, we're all aside. Um, the other judges do. And if those judges do the right thing and recuse themselves, because obviously their boss is getting called as a witness and his wife, and we have somebody from another circuit come in, no judge is going to look at this and see like, oh, yeah, this is this is kosher. You know, like so the example that I've been giving to people is this. Like, I think I told you this too when I first talked to you. Um, is like if if Martin Luther King is walking through Birmingham, Alabama, and he's marching through with all his people, right? And the KKK is protesting. And then they leave and KKK takes over the prosecutor's office. And six years later, drags Martin Luther King and all these people back here. No one in America would countenance that. No one would say, well, that is fair and equitable, and this is a just thing to do perhaps present company excluded. But I think most lawyers would be like, no, that is clearly a violation of due process. That is pure Bolshevism. You cannot do that. So at a certain point, those lawyers and judges are going to have to to face that fact. Okay. Um, and so the process, you, you have filed this motion to dismiss. Tell me about this gag order situation. So who, who moved for the gag order and what were the grounds for the gag order? Molly Conger moved for the gag order via <laughs> the prosecutor. Oh, okay. so it was originally um, Judge. You know, I don't remember some of these poor, poor UVA students. Say he, you know, shouldn't be able to talk about them in public, given his past comments and you know his his willingness to talk about things on the on his podcast and blah blah blah. And so the judge is like, okay. I'll, I'll grant that. I, we, we, I had no objection to that. I'm, again, I don't know who these people are. 
I have no reason to talk about them. I certainly don't want to contact them. Um, so we agreed to that on the spot. And then I get to back to the jail and I go to the magistrate's office and I'm signing the paperwork to get out of jail. And uh, the judge has pulled a switcheroo on me. And now the paperwork says I can't have I can't make any public comments about the case whatsoever. And I was like, nah, that's not what I agreed to. But what am I going to not sign the paper? So I had to sign the paper, got out, had to file a motion later on to uh, change the conditions of bond. Can you, so, could you, do you by any chance have the language of that handy? Can, can you give me the precise wording of this? Not handy. Okay. Uh, actually, my paralegal has the whole file. Okay. Um, unfortunately, because that's un, that's unusual in the extreme, right? I mean, you know, if for for one it's, to say that you can't talk about the case at all is is an extreme thing in and of itself. And then for you to agree to something and then to and then to have the the agreement changed, that's really substantial. Right. Looking at it charitably, you know, when we when we did go back for the hearing uh, on the motion to con to change the conditions of bond, the judge did say to the prosecutor, "Look." I meant that he can't talk about the alleged victims in the case. And I'm going to lift this gag order for for all other purposes. Of course, he can make public comments. Do you have anything to say about that? So to be fair, I think it might have been a mis misunderstanding or maybe one of her clerks got gung ho. I don't know. But it seemed to have been a genuine error. Okay. I, I wouldn't mark it against Higgins. Yeah. Okay, and so it, yeah, it would be extremely out of the ordinary for that to have happened. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even you know they've, um, they, you know they've got now two gag orders against Trump, but they're limited gag orders. He's not allowed to exactly. attack the court staff in New York, and right. then you know they tried to move for something very sweeping in D.C. Jack Smith is like, okay, well you're basically. I mean, he he went completely nuts that he's not allowed to basically criticize the Biden administration. And the judge was like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to say that, but you're not allowed to criticize the prosecutor, Mr. Trump. Uh, right. And I was I was like, wow, I mean, that's even that's pretty extreme. You know, the idea it that is. you can't you can't criticize the the pit bull that the Biden administration sent after you is pretty interesting. And now he's he's over at rally saying that he's going to uh, that he's going to violate that real quick. Let me just get through a couple of these super chats here. Jack Handy sends 25 bucks. Hail Chris. Hail Augustus. Hail chat. Well, thank you. Hail Jack Handy. Uh, and I must also uh, hail the ever generous to real Tony Soprano sends a hundred bucks. He says, glad to see Augustus in is doing well. Looking pretty spiffy, bro. Hope the kids are well. Need to get Chris in some pimp and suits, too. You are both great American heroes. By the way, do you think that giant mole on Molly Conger's face is cancerous? Like, seriously, get that thing removed, bitch. Disgusting. Um, is are you right, well, under the impression on. that Molly Conger is a she? She wasn't there, I don't think, right? So we can talk about Molly Conger. I right? have no idea, but all I'll say is Tony Soprano is talking about my future wife here. Molly Conger is clearly in love with me. So like, <laughs> as soon as this is over, we are going on a date, and I'm probably going to give it up like the first. <laughs> Man, uh, just I don't know if she was forfeiting there. your chastity for the. It's it's that serious, huh? Um, <laughs> I think I'm in love, bro. I, I wish there were anybody on earth who loved me as much as Molly Conger does, honestly. You know, she I don't gets, think my own kids love me as much as Molly Conger does. She can be one of the most obsessive people in that city. I believe that's among her mental disorders that she's being medicated for is uh, something to do with obsessive uh, obsessive problems. Oh. And uh, you seem to be the current. Special. You now, uh, you know, hey, look, you know, I'm not saying that you're not special. Friend. You're a special guy. 
but you know you're a very special person with a mental patient who's obsessed with you and that's that's all i mean to say uh maybe the first time (laughs) you know yes you know these things you know they're they're the best in bed after all and so i'll uh I'll, i'll try to refrain from being disgusting anyway so uh so you have you were met with this gag order it, it looks like somebody other than the judge um went and engaged in some error or impropriety and we are in no position to say which you were under that order for how long before you got to go back there and um and alter the conditions of your bond well so from june 26th to july 25th i was in jail i technically could have said whatever I wanted. Uh, I didn't have a gag order, but that would have been retarded. Uh, when I was granted bond, that was July 25th, I believe. And so from July 25th to last week, I was uh, under that gag order. So about, what, what's that, two and a half months? Wow. So you were in jail for all, almost a whole month? I was in jail for a whole month, yeah. They kept me here in Orlando for three and a half weeks and extradited me to Virginia. So I have some awareness of this. My understanding is that while you were in jail at first, you were not seeking publicity. And so I did not call attention to this. But you you were arrested in Orlando. I mean, were you fighting extradition? What took so long for you to get out of jail? Like you said, man, the the process is the punishment. Um, Yeah, I was I was arrested here in the office in broad daylight with my sons. My sons were here with me. they knew where I was. Everybody knew where I was. This address is public. Uh, you know, I mean, somebody could knock on the front door right now. Uh, you know, they, it's not like I was running. I was in Virginia four days earlier. Like they could have just called me on the phone and said, hey, why don't you turn yourself in? And I'd have been there, um, but they didn't do that. So when I got arrested, the judge here, who's now a judge on one of my cases. So that's, I'm, I'm gonna bring that up to him. He, uh, he refused to let me go, re- refused to let me turn myself in. Uh, and then the prosecutor, again, the Antifa prosecutor, who just happens to be homosexual, not that that's any of my business, he refused to allow me to go turn myself in. Um, and he's telling my uh, my attorney down here in Florida, uh, well, I'm, we didn't realize he was a real lawyer. Uh, <laughs> what, what kind of lawyer did you think I was when you had the cops show up at my office? You know, like that's pretty so, amusing. Yeah. Well, we've conducted this investigation, but you know, we have no idea what he does for a living. Investigation. Um, Molly Conger and the Antifa did the investigation, obviously, and it's very clear. Like they are the ones giving all the information. Uh, you can see in her first article, you know, she's saying she has an exclusive uh, with the prosecutor's office, and then at the end of that article, she's listing attributes of everybody who's about to be arrested. She knew who was on this hit list before the police did. That's a very, very telling thing. So that's another reason like these these people are all going to get what's coming to them. It's only a matter of time. And the smartest thing to do right now is for these prosecutors to just dismiss the case and walk away. Now, you mentioned uh, the prosecutor is a homosexual. I don't think that you're referring to Hingley, right? This is another guy, right? No, I'm Tufts. Oh, Tufts. What can we we say about Mr. Tufts? Uh, We can say that he was a former public defender. That's one of the most amazing things about this. So was Hingley. Hingley and Tufts were both public defenders. Uh, They were both UVA staff, law professors. They jumped ship 
took over the prosecutor's office in order to prosecute this case, which is why I give that MLK KKK example a lot. Like they were on one side, jump ship took this place over in order to specifically prosecute these people. So we know that much. We know that he was an organizer at the time of August 11th and 12th. He's in the Hefe report listed with, uh, you know, other Antifa organizers in the same breath. Um, we know that he was actively pushing Tracy and we've got emails from him now from UVA, which is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of information in the motion to disqualify the prosecutor's office. Um, and he's, you know, he's the center of it all. I mean, he's the lawyer they put in there to do this. Now, you know, um, I got the impression that you basically, this is a theory. I don't have a whole lot of evidence of this, but I think that there was basically like, a bunch of maybe it was UVA students or the National Lawyers Guild or something. Some some group of, you know, lawyers who are not the people taking credit for this are basically creating the legal filings. Do you do you have a similar impression here? Oh, I'm sure. I, I don't think he, he's obviously not doing this himself. Um, and the information that he's getting on the defendant, specifically me, is obviously not him. So, for instance, for some inside baseball here, we had this bond hearing, right? Leading up to the bond hearing, my lawyer's talking with Tufts. They've worked it out. He's like, yeah, I don't see any reason I'm not going to. But what we were talking about was um, you, you were asking me, do I think Tufts is acting alone or is there a team working with him on this stuff? So that's where we were. And the example <laughs> I was giving was the bond hearing. Because leading up to the bond hearing, my lawyer had talked with Tufts and he said, yeah, I don't see any reason we would object to bond in this case. Um, you know, the only question was going to be how much is it going to be and what are the terms going to be? But we get there and he does an absolute 180 when we show up. And then he goes and reads into the record um, for the judge all of these just just list of defamation. And then another list of actual things I did say in podcasts and uh, speeches and interviews. And so the list of defamation is all of the criminal allegations have come before specifically i won't even get into all that but i had to jump up at a certain point and start hollering and like i've been found innocent this is all outrageous um and higgins told me to shut up <laughs> but i just it, it could not go on um but then the other list which is the important part is they had quotations from me from like 2013 to 2018 letters I'd written essays podcasts I mean somebody had been working on that and it was not Tufts and I think it's pretty clear it was Molly Conger and the Antifa who had assorted all of these things about civil war and executing journalists after a fair trial of course uh, and all these radical things that I had said in my political speech he's now using them to say this guy is a total danger to society and should be denied bond but and again, to her credit, Higgins was not having any of that. But so, clearly he's not working by himself. What do you know about the involvement of the National Lawyers Guild in all of this mess? I don't, but well, I'll find out. I, I would encourage you to. You know, when you go through the videos of the mayhem on August 12th, there's a lot of green hats there. Mm. And if that doesn't stand out to you, you'll you'll notice those hats from time to time in the future if you learn to look for them. They, they show up places 
I remember. Oh, yeah. They're legal observers. Yeah. Legal observers, which is another, it's a fancy way of saying co-conspirator with those guys. And so, you know, the, and I questioned Elizabeth Sines about this. What's your involvement with the National Lawyers Guild? And, oh my God, did she panic when I asked her that question? She's like, oh, well, it's not like I get their emails or anything. And I was like, well, what is your involvement with the National Lawyers Guild? <laughs> you know, she 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 really didn't want to answer that question, and she panicked. So did um, Marissa Blair in the Signs v. Kessler trial. Both of them were like, you know, they're they're both uh, law students. They were both law students at UVA, right? And you know, they uh. were they were mixed up with the National Lawyers Guild. And my suspicion is that this whole entire thing, you know, that they're involved, their in this, you know. That basically yeah. you have a bunch you have a bunch of lawyers who are behind the scenes who are basically, you know, I don't know what their capacity is or what their, you know, their acumen is, but they're basically drawing up all of these legal filings that are finding themselves into courtrooms. And and their their work was showing up in my criminal case in the federal court in New Hampshire mm-hmm. too. So like you keep on seeing like the same things. It's the same body of work keeps on being replicated in different contexts. It's it's this basically opposition research firm if you will that is working with prosecutors offices and plaintiffs counsel and all this stuff to bring as much legal trouble as they can for us with the singular purpose of you know preventing us from taking over the government essentially what they're what they're afraid of right and so of course you know because then they're all out of work they're all done for as soon as we take over exactly and they know it as far as their their acumen i mean i'd say you know to be fair um they're obviously great lawyers and you know tufts um as much as i despise him on a personal level uh he is a good lawyer like he's he's a well-spoken guy he's clearly smart he's making good arguments um he you know i i think his whole career is a joke but um he as a lawyer uh, his his acumen is uh it's undeniable uh, and these guys working with him like they're clearly um good guys and and I think that's a, a compliment to me personally, because uh, I remember, you know, you were there. Uh, we had the same people after all of us in the Libertarian Party. I still wake up some mornings and I thank God that I'm not in the Libertarian Party and that I have nothing to do with all those losers. Like, I, I think of the difference between my enemies in the Libertarian Party back in the day and the enemies I have now. And I thank God. Like I have a completely different caliber of horrible people trying to kill me now. So <laughs> I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, it's uh, you could tell a lot about a man by his foes. Right. And so what Marilyn Manson said, yeah, you know, and so <laughs> I, I think it that. does it does say quite a great deal. You know, I mean, that was what brought you to my attention. Right. I'm like, oh, all the same people that I hate are, are trying to ruin this guy's, you know, political career. He must be on to something. And uh, and here we find ourselves eight years later. Here we are. Yeah. So uh, let's see. I mean, what uh, where should we go next with this, my friend? I mean, what am I what am I missing so far? Well, I think we talked about um, the motion to recuse in essence. We talked about the motion to dismiss, which was denied. We didn't talk about the motion really for uh, subpoena Ducas Tecum or to disqualify the prosecutor's <laughs> office. I guess that's where we should go next. OK, so, that, so you're oh, trying to subpoena what records from who? So from Tufts specifically, like I said, he's outed uh, in the Hefe report. He is an Antifa organizer 
and was on August 11th and 12th. I mean, that alone is egregious enough to disqualify the prosecutor's office. So, okay, what what do we have? Can you tell me anything specifically about what Tuft's involvement was in August 11th and 12th? You say he's he was an yeah. organizer. He's in the Hafey report. He's in the Hafey report as being an organizer, like a liaison between the police and BLM. Well, that's um, that's amazing. Okay. So that's that's an interesting thing by itself because you know the right. National Lawyers Guild. The, the tip of the iceberg, like that's just like a line in the Hefe report. Like that's a nothing comment. But then another lawyer had gotten his emails from UVA from other people there. Did a FOIA request. I mean that's in the motion to disqualify the prosecutor's office because it's not just Tufts. I mean when you have a conflict in a lawyer's or any lawyer's office, uh, whether it's criminal or civil. You've got a conflict that is grave enough that that attorney has to be booted from the case. If he hasn't been partitioned off from the other people in the in the office, you've got to disqualify the whole office. Like if it were me and I've got five other attorneys working with me and it turns out one of these other attorneys at my office was, you know, I don't know. He used to be the attorney for a guy that we're now going against. Like he'd have to be he'd have to be removed from the case. And if we didn't quarantine him our whole office would have to be taken off the case and that's the case here in charlottesville because it's not like tufts is acting alone uh hingley is in there with him in these hearings uh which they are clearly worried about our motions to dismiss and the motions of recuse like they're clearly worried because now hingley is in there himself he wants to be present so tufts has not been partitioned off they have to disqualify the whole prosecutor's office and again him just being an organizer those days, that's like the tip of the iceberg. Everything that came after and him working with the Antifa to push the prosecutions of these torch-wielding Nazis, which, again, involves the judge's wife, uh, all that is coming to light. I, I remember. I think I remember a story. Was he one of these people who, like, threatened to resign if they did not bring the case? Is that... Uh, I don't recall that. Okay. You mean resign from UVA? I thought that I I thought there were people who were threatening to resign from the prosecutor's office if he didn't bring. Oh, the case. oh, oh, yeah. No, that was that couldn't have been him because he he was UVA at the time and possibly public defender at the time. He okay. couldn't probably have made that threat. I gotcha. Um, well, so the uh, you've got this motion um, for for records to show what their involvement in the case was then the, uh, the records the records to show their involvement in the events that lead to the to right. lead to the case right because the you have some information at least from the hafey report suggests that that tufts was some kind of organizer do we have any specific information about hingley being involved in the events or Hingley's, is that no separate? i think hingley is just the you know the the white-haired guy that could run for office i think right. that's the guy that I, I again i don't know if it's national lawyers guild or what but there's clearly a cabal here that has gotten together and said you know what hingley's the guy he should run um He's 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 the Albemarle County Prosecutor's Office, the Joe Biden of that position. He's he's, he's Uncle right. Joe. He's, the, he's yeah. the one being pulled by the puppet strings. Yes, yeah. he's the figurehead here. Okay. Um, so one of the things that is the standard in Virginia to remove a prosecutor from a case is qualify the prosecutor from prosecuting a case is personal animus, and we've got that in spades. I mean, his own statements, his own actions from, you know, not just being an organizer those nights in question, but everything 
after that, jumping ship to the prosecutor's office, uh, prosecuting this case, um, being at the candlelight vigil, like all of this shows this is all personal animus toward his political enemies. So he was a public, was he an Albemarle County public defender on August 11th, 2017? My understanding, that's what he told my attorney in Florida. Yeah. That's fascinating. So he was the, he was the public, if I had, or or I'm sorry, well, wait a second. He, they, my understanding of it is that they don't have like a public defender's office in Albemarle County or do they? Like they, the the private practice attorneys are basically assigned. I don't know. They do. And it was Hingley who did it from what I understand from local Charlottesville attorneys that are involved in this case. Now, Hingley was the one who spearheaded the movement to make a public defender's office in Albemarle County. Okay. And now he's the prosecutor. Okay. That's interesting. Very interesting. So they didn't, they didn't have a public defender's yeah. office. This guy's like, we need to have a public defender's office. Cause what they, I, I understand other people who have had cases there. They basically get private counsel assigned to them at taxpayer expense is, is my yeah. understanding of how. Uh, well, that's what happens. Yeah. And I mean, we do that here too. I mean, we've got an established, a well-established public defender's office here in Orlando. Um, but still you can get conflicted off that case and you get regional conflict counsel <laughs> or you get conflicted off that too. And you can just get a, an attorney assigned to you. I mean, that's that's pretty standard practice. Okay. Um, so they have a public defender's office, but they, it, it, in for whatever reason, it's common to assign private counsel in any way. But they do have yeah. a public defender's office. Okay, well, that's interesting to know. Um, and these guys are like, well, you know, we, we're the ones who, they, these guys spear the creation of the public defender's office, and then they leapfrog from that to the prosecutor's office is sort of their, their career trajectory. That's, that's right. That's interesting. Um, and so, I mean, you know, this this phenomena of the public defender turned prosecutor, this is largely um, this is a project. This is not something this is not a common career trajectory for attorneys. This is something that's being engineered, is it not? It, it can. OK, so, I mean, to be fair, yes, people will sometimes go from public defender to prosecutor. They want to see both sides of the aisle, see how the other side works and. You know, I've, I've, I work with somebody, well, not anymore. Um, I did work with somebody in the prison ministry here with the Catholic Church. Uh, and I called him one day, said, hey, can you take this case? And he's like, sorry, I went back to the prosecutor's office. <laughs> I mean, that happens. You know, my own uh, public defender in South Carolina used to be um, a prosecutor. It, it's um, more common in the other direction, though, and not from the prosecutor to the public defender, but prosecutors other, become private defense attorneys right. because they get a pay raise that more way, money. generally speaking. Exactly. It's not very common. It happens, but it's not very common for the public defender to prior to, say, 2015. It's not common for the public defender to become the prosecutor. That's that's a the the, yeah. the frequency of that occurrence is a recent phenomenon spurred on by a project, I think is my understanding. Right. And and that project is clearly to prosecute political enemies. There's no question about it. I mean, and they did it explicitly. It was in the public debates. He said, I am running for this office so <laughs> that we can prosecute these torch wielding neo-Nazis right. who terrorized our town. I mean they they said it balls out in public. And I mean, you know, that's been a subject of some controversy in, in Trump's cases, right? I mean, the Letitia James, notoriously, yeah. she said, right. I'm running for office. I'm going to get Donald Trump. And, you know, in New York State, he's ba- basically making the case that she's not qualified to bring the case on account of basically doing it as a campaign promise. But that's not, you know, some kind of legal axiom that they can't do that, I guess, huh? 
Well, we are making that argument. So I would not concede that. I think that's a due process issue. I think it's a, a basic fairness and equity issue. Whether you want to call it equal protection or due process, I mean, you cannot just run on the 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 notion that you're going to prosecute somebody for something that happened long ago before you ever took office. You're just going to take office so that you can prosecute that something that already happened. Something that, by the way, the old prosecutors did not believe was a crime. I mean, at the very least, you're talking about something ex post facto, or you're talking about uh, unnecessary or, or, or unreasonable pre-litigation delay. I mean, there are a hundred reasons that something like Letitia James is doing, or Lawton <laughs> Tusk and Hingley are doing, that is 100% against the entire spirit of American law. Well, let's talk about pre-litigation delay. That's an interesting concept. So Virginia does not have Virginia does not have a statute of limitations, but the reason right. that there is a statute of limitations is to mm -hmm. put a hard limit on the abuse that is not that is independent of the concept of a statute of limitations. The the pre-litigation delay is a prejudicial thing that that actually exists regardless of a statute of limitations. Is that my do I have that correct? Yes, yeah, so a statute of limitations is specifically designed to prevent a, uh, a prejudice against the defendant because when you charge somebody or i mean this is in civil cases too if you sue somebody for instance after several years like you're suing on a contract <coughs> you're suing them 10 years after this contract was allegedly breached that contract like it disappeared it does not exist anymore how could you possibly go to court on this so we set statutes of limitations because evidence disappears uh witnesses die or witnesses, even if they're alive, they start forgetting things after a couple of years. You can't remember details about things. Um, evidence goes stale. Uh, there are a hundred things that go wrong. You have to have some kind of limit on bringing something. Now, Virginia does not have that statute of limitations. Fair enough. However, you know, you have to still, you know, engage in the sense of like this, this system of justice with some sense of of fairness and equity. You have to um, prosecute with some sense of justice in mind. It's not that they didn't know who we were, right? me specifically. Everybody knew that I was there. I took one of the most famous videos of Charlottesville. Everybody knew. I mean, I was on camera. I was in interviews saying, yes, we were there. I've given speeches about it. Everybody knew that I was there. Everybody saw me on camera doing it. Uh, and for them to wait six years, it, they can't use that. Well, we didn't have the evidence. Uh, we couldn't have taken these people to trial. Uh, we didn't have uh, the identities of these people. We needed to, whatever it was, you know, they don't have any of those justifications, but all the evidence is disappearing. Now I still have that video, thank God. Um, but you know, who knows where these witnesses are? Who know? I know, uh, you know, some witnesses have left the country and that's severely prejudicial to me and to the other defendants. Yeah. Um, some witnesses are now the prosecutor. Some witnesses are now the chief judge, severely prejudicial. So that's why we have statutes of limitations, but that doesn't mean that you can just bring anything willy nilly 80 years later, like you're some secretary at the Holocaust at Auschwitz. And you know, this is such a, a worldwide outcry that we need to nab a 93 year old lady for saying, you know, there were no gas chambers when I was working there. I mean, you have to have some limits on the abuse of government power. Well, that's, you know, that's the thing. So, I mean, the 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 pretrial delay constitutes a prejudice to the defense and that and that and 
prejudicing the defense is something that is that is legally actionable by the defense in the absence of a statute of limitations. Is that the case? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so we are moving to dismiss based on that. I mean, we've right. already yeah. done a motion to dismiss on the, the super easy out. I mean, we, we gave them an out. Like, look, just take this so we don't have to hang you publicly. And they didn't take it. So we're filing a separate motion to dismiss based on pre-litigation delay. Uh, and several other things. Okay, but, so that motion has not yet been filed. The pre-litigation delay motion to dismiss has not yet been filed. That's something that is forthcoming. All right. Um, a lot of stuff forthcoming. Oh, you, know, yeah. you know, you think about, so these people basically are claiming that they're a bunch of innocent UVA students and that they were surrounded through no fault of their own and made to fear for their lives and all this nonsense. And, you know, among the things that might be relevant in that is, I don't know, their communications, say, their text messages, uh, you know, this evidence might not exist any longer, right? I mean, this is all of the evidence that you need to get for the purpose of discovery. You're going and to you be know denied how, discovery as a consequence of the pretrial delay, as one example, right? Right. And you know how you know they're implicitly admitting that? No one has even bothered to pretend that they need my cell phone or my emails or my communications. No search warrant for anything like that because they know full well it does not exist. No one keeps their cell phone for six years. No one has text messages or emails from six years ago. No one has Discord messages or Facebook messages, Twitter messages from six years ago. They know it or they would have gotten it from us when we were arrested. So that, well, that's a two-way street. You know? Well, interestingly, communications from one side have been preserved right they've got all this stuff from right. from what they did before but and they didn't me. investigate the other side and so you know so they've got the discord they've got all the stuff that signs v kessler subpoenaed from us but there's no information well, you still don't even know who your victims are for f's sake i, I don't and, and so like <laughs> i wasn't in any of that discovery because right. Sines v. Kessler, I was never subpoenaed in that case. I was never served with that lawsuit. Uh, I dodged a magic bullet for that one. No, nobody ever served me. They got a default judgment against me for God knows what reason. Um, but I didn't have to go through the discovery process. I think God spared me that. Well, well, I'm going to have to talk to you about that when we have you back on. That's that's worth discussing. But the the um, sure. Um, and so in any case, you know, there's 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 a bunch of, you know, the the investigation was entirely one sided six years ago in any case. And now you as a defendant in the case are prejudiced in that you can't go and obtain discovery of evidence from six years ago. Right. And the and the law enforcement of the time had absolutely no interest in discovering anything about the other side. And so, you know, there's no evidence. The, the capacity to investigate the crime is now gone. And oh. and your pretrial delay uh, is is um, is prejudicial in in that capacity. That's basically the idea behind the motion that you're that you're uh, planning to have forthcoming, right? One of the prongs, yeah, yeah. Um, another is that fairness argument I, I mentioned about um, <laughs> you know the the KKK and Martin Luther King example uh, that cannot be countenanced. And then there are several other things. I mean, there's there's a million reasons to dismiss this case by law. So, again, I, I don't think this will ever go to a jury trial. I don't think any of these judges, no matter how pressured they are by the city, I don't think any of them are insane enough to let this go to trial. Well, I you know, that would be um, 
it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, my friend. I, you know, I, um, I, I hope that you're right about that, but I have, uh, I have not been given a whole lot of reason to um, place great deal of faith in the courts in recent years, sadly. Well, I don't have faith in the courts, to be honest. Uh, I have faith in God, man. I've, uh, that's, that's all you can do, you know. Well, you know, um, that's an interesting subject. I mean, I, I think uh, something tells me that uh, uh, in my experience, well, I don't know that uh, God would go out of his way to rescue me. I, I should pray more maybe if I want that. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, um, there's a lot of suffering is allowed to go on in any case, and these people seem to be intent on inflicting it. You know, yeah, we can learn from that. And there's uh, there's an argument to be made that um, you know there's a spiritual purpose to that. Say, sure. I mean, you got to look at uh, the the battle lines drawn here. I mean, you have actual gay antifa prosecuting us i mean you have actual socialist dog moms working <laughs> collaborating with these people in the open you have i mean the worst scum of the earth acting as the prosecutors acting as the journalists acting as the behind the scenes people and you have that very sharp demarcation and on the other side is us i mean it's a it's a literal battle of good and evil here so and if we you know get martyred you know, whatever. Uh, that's just how it goes. But I really don't think it's going to come to that, man. I think there's going to be total victory. Well, I, I sure hope that that's the case, my friend. We could use we could use a one we could use one in the win column. Uh, you know, I I have uh, I have reason to be skeptic. I have reason for skepticism about this. I mean, if Donald Trump can't get the courts off his case, you know, the the idea that that yeah. we're going to is you and know, he could win too. He could win the whole thing. I mean, what's happening to him, what's happening to us is completely unprecedented. Um, you know, I've won everything. I've, I've had a lot of false allegations made against me for years. Uh, I win every time. So I don't see any reason I wouldn't win this time. I mean, I, there's obviously a lot of reasons, like the corruption in Charlottesville and, <laughs> and uh, the present state of political affairs in America. But yeah, I, don't, I don't see it going that way. I'm feel pretty confident here so uh i don't know so um the if you if you prevail um what do you think uh what do you do you think that these people stop what do you think they do next oh i don't know i'm sure they'll make up something else to get me that's what we signed up for man <laughs> get me for something you know I, you had um when you got back into law, you said that you sort of retired from politics. I understand you've been podcasting for a while, and the, and the podcast is centered on the law. Is that my understanding? Yeah, crime and punishment. I just uh, talk about legal issues. Well, you know, until my arrest, <laughs> I, I would say every single episode, look, this is a legal commentary. We are not talking about politics. But after my arrest, it's like, you know, the jig is up. Like, all politics and law are the same thing now. Like nobody's making any bones about it anymore. There's no such thing as an abstract rule of law that we all care about the dignity. It, it's all about get into office, prosecute your political enemies. That's where we're at now in America. We've entered a new stage of this republic. Well, I mean, that's kind of my observation here. I mean, it, you know, they have I don't think our legal system can recover from what's 
been done, frankly. Okay, I mean, we, we've we've taken off. You know, the, the the justice system essentially exists on a polite fiction, say. Okay, that, that this is a machine that that does things according to a set of rules, and it can be its outcomes can be predicted based on, you know, yes. how how things are supposed to be. But actually, it's just people doing stuff is actually. The, the law, right? I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the legal practice is the behavior of human beings at the end of the day. And like, exactly. if the people who are in charge of that system decide to do nefarious things with it, then there's actually nothing that can stop that from happening. There's not there's actually no substitute for decent people in your government is what we're sort of what we're sort of discovering. Right. Um, mm. And so we're, we're sort of met with this situation where that 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 disrupts, you know, at, to say the least of it, that disrupts public trust of the institutions, you know, and, uh, and, and appropriately so. But, you know, trying to regain that trust, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure how that looks, you know, and I don't I don't see that that is a good thing. I think that there's a lot of people in what could be described as a dissident right or what have you that, you know, they're sort of like cheering for the, the downfall of the system. And it's starting to look like they're going to get their way. Yeah. But, you know, that's not something that you, you know, it's it's very easy to destroy things. <laughs> it, it It's remarkably to difficult that. to build them. And so, 100%. you know, we're facing a situation where, you know, these people are discrediting the legal system with what they're doing. And, and I don't think that they're, I don't think that there's an, I don't think that that's something they consider to be an unfortunate side effect of what they're doing. I think it's actually a central purpose. You know, you, that's you, you, right. you actually sue Donald Trump for rape. And you put a lunatic on the stand and you and and you actually don't find him guilty of the, you don't find him liable for the rape, but you find him liable for sexual assault. The same thing they do with us in the in the signs case. They sue us for a racially motivated violent conspiracy. They hold us liable for harassment. And then they just run around acting like they want as if there's nothing wrong with the with the entire fraud that's been perpetrated upon the system. Um, they they do these things basically for the purpose of discrediting the legal system. They're not they're not really officers of the court. They're anarchists who are tearing it down. Well, I mean the the fact is that's always really been the way the criminal justice system is. It's just nobody's cared about it till now because now it's all political and everybody's on the hook, not just criminals. Um, you know, you would have um, these prosecutions where I mean every day. Every day. It's not like it's something in the past. I mean, every day since I've been practicing law, you have prosecutors who will just throw stuff at the wall and they'll say, yeah, you're looking at 30 years. But I tell you what, I'll drop this to a misdemeanor if you want to take a plea. You're looking at six months probation. Right. You got a year probation, you terminate early at six months. That's how the game is played. It's always been like that. But that's how it is for domestic violence and robberies and theft. And who cares about those people? They're not even really human. But now it's been brought to every average citizen is now on the hook. Everybody who's conservative, everybody who's right of Hillary Clinton is now on the hook. And you're looking at criminal charges for being at the wrong rally, saying the wrong thing online. So it's kind of like uh, the Magna Carta, right? Like you used to be able as king of England to just throw anybody in jail. Like, these are peasants. Who cares? When they started doing it to noblemen, then it was like, wait, has this been how our legal system has been working this whole time? Like we, we need to do something about this. So they made the Magna Carta. And that's where we're at now. Like, are we going to have a Magna Carta or are we going to have all out civil war for the next several generations until something shakes out? I could go either way. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that, um, 
I, I, it's a difficult to predict the future under the best of circumstances, and with all the chaos being intentionally created, that becomes a substantially more difficult endeavor. Say that that you know, trying to uh, anticipate what's going to happen in the next twelve hours, much less the next twelve years, right. becomes a perilous uh, a perilous journey. Um, yeah, I didn't see uh, hang gliders coming into freaking Israel the other day. I, that, that was not on my list of things I was predicting. I'll no, that. no. Um, any minute, something could pop off. You never know. Right. Um, and so, you know, the... Uh, what if, you, if you're convicted of this thing, what are you looking at? Five years. Okay. Now, in the, in the Virginia court system, you know, I, I recently got done with the federal government, as you know. And mm-hmm. in the federal court system, they basically, you have a statutory maximum, and then there's what, what are known as sentencing guidelines, and your criminal history mm-hmm. category mm-hmm. maces up with your offense level, and, you know, you find these things right. on a spreadsheet somewhere. They don't have that in Virginia, do they? No, most states don't. That's a very federal court thing, and a lot of federal cases, like, they know what they're doing, the feds. So really, a lot of times it comes down to arguing over sentencing. That's what the whole case comes down to. Um, but in state court, yeah, they don't have that. They have maximum sentence. Like it, five years is the maximum sentence. They can't go over that. They'd have to charge me with something else. Um, they could give me probation. They could give me time served. I mean, they, they could offer tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's Saturday. But they could offer on Monday, look, just take a plea we'll give you time served we'll give we'll withhold adjudication just go away so they try to do to me in south carolina like we'll give you adjudication withheld we'll give you time served we will give you an expungement we'll give you everything just go away i was like fuck you people no we're going to trial uh, so that's what we're doing in Virginia, man. I don't care what they come out with me with. Like I will go for five years if I have to, but we're going to trial. Um so and if you in in Virginia, I understand it is unique in that well while the judge is ultimately the one who passes sentence, you, the the jury makes a sentence recommendation. That's kind of like an uncommon thing, is my understanding, right? Well, I mean that's that's kind of how it is. I mean a judge can say, all right, that verdict's insane. I'm throwing this case out. They could do that, but that, I mean that never <laughs> happens. But it's a power that the judge has. Sure. Well, that's the motion to dis- that's the motion to strike you're you're discussing, right? And so, they, they well, can- the motion to strike is after the prosecution rests. If that's denied, then the defense would have to put on a case. But at the, I mean, I don't know about Virginia. The, you know, most places that I know of, if if you're at the end of the trial, a jury comes back with a verdict of guilty, the judge would be like, I'm not accepting that. Uh, it could it could happen. I don't, it, I don't know it just me. happened to my friend Ian in federal court. Interestingly, you know, Ian Freeman, uh, my uh, my uh, erstwhile radio colleague from Free Talk Live, you know, he he was convicted of a whole slew of charges in federal court by a jury. Um, he moved pre-trial to have this money laundering count dismissed because, you know, he he had been basically approached by uh, somebody who was acting on behalf of the federal government. I forget if it was an actual employee of the FBI or whether it was a rat or what. But a guy came and basically said, oh, I, I'm a heroin dealer. I want to buy Bitcoin from you to f- conduct my criminal business. And he's like, well, now that you've told me that, I can't do business with you because that's a right. crime. Right. And the guy's like, can I go use your Bitcoin ATM? And he's like, I can't give you permission to go use the thing after you say that to me. The guy drives 40 miles away, uses the Bitcoin ATM, and they charge him with money laundering over this. 
He's conv- he, he yeah, he, that sounds like the feds. He, he moves yeah. he moves pre-trial to dismiss that charge. It's denied. At the close of the prosecution's case, they move to dismiss the charge again. They deny it. He defends against that charge. He is convicted of that charge by the jury. And in post-trial motions, the judge dismisses the money laundering charge, saying, obviously, you're not money laundering if 40 miles away from you, somebody's doing something that you're unaware of. Right. <laughs> and I was well, like, good for him, man. That's unheard of that a judge would do that. So good it, for him. What's unheard of is that you know, he's. It wasn't that the judge was exposed to new facts during the course of this, which is the sick thing. Okay, so you know he's now sentenced to eight years in prison on the basis of a verdict from a jury proven willing to convict him of a crime he didn't commit. You know, and so like you know, it's 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 good that he got it dismissed. I'm glad he wasn't facing sentencing on that charge. Clearly, but. You know, it's it's wild what they what they'll allow people to get away with, I'd say. Well, I mean, the judge might have said, I don't know the facts of the case, but the judge might have said, look, this isn't a, a matter of law. This is a factual matter. We've got to send it to the jury. But then he's probably thinking the whole time, you know, unless the jury is mentally deficient, like they're going to see this. And, and then when they come back with guilty, the judge is probably like, what what is wrong with you people? He probably thought it wasn't a matter of law. It was a matter of fact for the jury to find but the jury was just retarded so he made the decision himself that's what it sounds like yeah good for him man that's awesome oh it's good it's good he got it dismissed in the end that's for sure um and and so you know it's it's one of those things though you know that you know it seems to me that you know pre-trial motions you know they're supposed to prevent these things from occurring and it's unfortunate when they uh when they don't so uh, you could face up to five years. It's the jury's going to make that call. Um, that is, I mean, the judge obviously um, has uh, has control. The, the jury makes a sentence recommendation, and then the judge is ultimately the one responsible for it. So the judge, in theory, mm-hmm. can say, no, you people have completely lost your minds. We're not going to impose that sentence. But typically in Virginia, that's what happens, which is why people plead guilty. They don't want to face right. the wrath of a bunch of Charlottesville citizens. Well, I mean, sentencing. that's not just Charlottesville. That's America. You know, I mean, people plead guilty every single day all across the country to things they did not do because they don't want to be rolling the dice. OK, so we are back. That is very good news. And so we are back. Um, I am very sorry to our guest and to our audience. You know, I've, I've talked about this before that um, when, when I've had guests on the show before, sometimes like right towards the end of it, we've had this situation where this like CPU usage spikes and I actually have a solution to this problem that I've been testing, but it isn't quite ready for prime time yet. But I, I really want to have Augustus on here today. And unfortunately, it is the worst that it has ever been. And that is unfortunate because... This is uh, one of my favorite people to speak to, and I'm and I'm very sorry I about this. You, baby. But um, we uh, we are going to have him back after I fix this nonsense, and we're going to talk to him at great length because you, you know th- you think this is interesting. He's got a really fascinating history. He's he's been involved in a lot of really interesting things, and he's had a, a fascinating journey. So wh- after I get this mess straightened out, which I which I actually expect to uh, have accomplished pretty soon, and then we'll deal with whatever problem comes after that because you know that's that's lot um but uh anyway so uh let's try to wrap this up it's almost 11 30 anyway you've been very generous with your time and i'm grateful for that um we've basically got this situation where um you're facing this just cabal of left-wing fanatics who's taken over the legal system in charlottesville and almoral county 
you face up to five years in prison if you are convicted. There's not, you know, you've got some pretrial motions coming. You have some hope that uh, if uh, if the courts can't save you, perhaps God can. And um, what uh, what's what should people take away from this tonight, my friend? Um, you know, first of all, go back to church. I learned that lesson. Uh, second of all, always keep fighting. You know, I mean, I, I really don't hold it against the guys who took pleas, man. I mean, like I said, one of those guys was from another state being held for five, six months until trial. He's got 10 kids at home. Like, what choice does he have? Uh, you know, I, I saw it in my first round in jail, like dudes losing their apartments, can't take can't get their kids to school, losing their truck, like whatever what, their whole life falling apart. They take a plea so they can get out of there and fix their life. Like that's priority number one if you're a family man. So I'd say for those of you who can fight, you have a moral obligation to to do so. And I also say, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been remiss in that I've uh, thought about for years, you know, I, I uh, as one of the speakers at Charlottesville, as one of the people there, as one of the public figures there, you know, I had a, I have a serious debt to this day to everybody who was at Charlottesville. I think a lot of us who were leaders at that time fell through on a lot of people. Um, and my, I include myself in that, you know, more than anybody, because, you know, like I said, I was retired at the time this happened. Um, only so much I could do. I did write to certain lawyers trying to get involved, but um, after everything blew up, you know, I should have done more, could have done more, didn't. Um, and now I think this is, this is a way that I can, I can basically pay a karmic debt here. So I'm happy to be involved in this. I'm happy to be helping everybody as best I can. And hopefully, you know, if I win this thing, everybody wins this thing. And that's what I'm hoping for. Well, you know, they've they've really put us in a situation where we don't we don't have the option of walking away from it anymore. You know, no, they have they have created um, a, a set of circumstances in which the um, the the situation with which we are met is that people who would have much rather walked away from the whole thing are left without that choice and i think that in the wake of charlottesville um it's i think it's an astute observation you made that you know that the the people who were involved in that thing really i i'm not sure they could have done any better i mean we we were unprepared for that situation we had no idea what we were walking into unprecedented situation and 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 the other side knew exactly what they were doing importantly right we all think we're going to go down there rah 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 it's going to be another pikeville and they knew exactly what they were going to do and we were completely unprepared for that well you know what now you've got a bunch of people who understand you know who, who have been through it and you've got, it's all well documented and anybody who wants to understand it has the capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. And so as things go forward, you know, the other side's going to come up with new ideas and they're going to, they, they, they're never short on innovation, these people. But we are, uh, we are better prepared for the next struggle, I go so far as to say. And yeah, one of the things you're saying, like about uh, you don't have a choice, you you published something just a couple of days ago about Trump and saying Trump does not have a choice to walk away or to be safe. Yeah. He only has there is only being powerful. Yeah. And we're the same way. You know, I've been out of politics for several years now, for like four years now. I've been completely out of politics, have nothing to do with it. 
And then they show up at my office and drag me up there and put me right in the middle of everything all over again. Right? You don't have a choice to just go practice law and be with your kids and do MMA and just, you know, screw off and go do your own thing. Like they will come get you no matter how long you think you're out, like they will put you back in it. So you have no choice now. Yeah. The, um, that line, I borrowed that from, uh, from a man who's, uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call him very wise, but he's very intelligent. And he <laughs> said, we, uh, we, we don't, we don't have the choice to be safe only powerful and that line uh i I don't think that uh it might not be prudent for you to mention this man i'll mention him he goes by the name of emily gorsensky and he was saying that all throughout all of their riots and all of their mayhem okay so now um the uh i have uh i have said goodbye to our guest and I'm very sorry to him and to the listener for these uh, for these problems that we've been having. I, I as I mentioned, um, I'm actually I think I'm pretty close to solving this. I actually think that I can do this without any new equipment. But I was still troubleshooting this uh, at the time that we had our guest. This is a problem that the the way that we bring the guest on it the CPU used to shoot shoots through the roof. It's on the same computer that I'm doing the stream on. And um, I have a I have a way to address that, but I had some problems with it that I haven't been able to get worked out before today. And so, but you know, part of the reason that it takes me long to troubleshoot these things is because I'm doing this on a budget. I'm one person, okay? I've uh, uh, the people who have paid me a bunch of money already. Just ex- pretend I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. If you're somebody who's been listening to the show forever, and and you know, and you've uh, um, gave me $10 five years ago, or you've never paid before, consider supporting the show. If, if you're somebody who has a talent that you might be able to lend, um, I'd be interested in talking to you. Go to ChristopherCantwell.net slash how can I help. Uh, all the ways to help finance the production are at ChristopherCantwell.net slash donate. My, um, my uh, cash app is edgy Chris. There's lots of ways to do it. Cryptocurrency, all that stuff, Okay. Um, I would really like to, I think that we do a quality show here. And when we have things like this happen, I, uh, it's difficult for me to maintain my composure, frankly, because we have a great guest like that who comes on and discusses important subject matter. And then, you know, fundamentally something that could be solved with money gets in the way of something really important. And I get really upset about that. I'm not trying to, um, I'm not asking you to buy me a, a very nice car. <laughs> I, I, I want to try to get this thing so that, I can bring somebody on and discuss an important topic with them and say goodbye and not have a problem. And if we could get that far, I'm willing to uh, I, I'm willing to defer upgrades to my lifestyle indefinitely. Okay, um, well, not indefinitely. I'm 43 years old. I'd like to have a wife and stuff, you know, and that'd be nice to be able to do. But I'll worry about that later. I think that if I can continue making the good content, we get this stuff out there, we start doing a little bit of promotional consideration, we'll get to the point that we need to get to. But for now, it is uh, 1137, and you have all been generous with your time as well. So I'm going to say goodnight to you. I'm going to hope that you have a very good weekend. I am going to work on this uh, issue with the equipment that I do have available to me, and hopefully uh, I can get this straightened out very soon. But we'll be back for a comparatively trouble-free Surreal Politics on Monday. Of course, our member chats happen every Wednesday for surrealpolitics.com slash join members. 
If you are a SurrealPolitics.com member, you can also get mem- access to Full House members, H-A-U-S, members.com. And they have uh, they now have two pieces of content up there for your uh, listening enjoyment, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, they're a bunch of great guys, and I'm really happy to be working with them. And we're once I get a couple of these other things straightened out, we're going to start bringing other content producers in once I just don't have to be embarrassed about the problems that I have in my studio. And we're working on that. We're, I am working on that very hard. And I thank you very much for making that possible, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9.30 p.m. every week. Thank you. That's it. It's over. Then we organized the death squads for the people who wrecked America. You know what you call people you can't talk to? Enemies. And if we want to divide our society into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. A radical agenda. The event has turned into an opportunity for the left to push a racial and radical agenda. Implementing their radical agenda is the only thing they care about. They're bad actors. What they want to do here is ram their radical agenda down your throat. These are great Americans. These are people that want to see great things for the country. You know, they try and build them like uh, sort of a radical agenda. It's not a radical agenda. It's called the Second Amendment.